You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. John Winter, it is good to see you. Good to see you, Dan. Okay, so um, to the blogging heads and Sophia audience, um, I want to introduce uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, he writes regularly for the Electric Agora. His name is John Winter. We call him EJ. Um, what's the E again, John? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. But you don't, people don't call you Emmanuel, I take it. No. <laughs> can, I, can I continue on with EJ or do you want John for this? Uh, Uh, Either one, either one. Okay. All right. So welcome to everyone in the Sphere audience and on Blogging Heads TV, MeaningOfLife.tv. I'm Daniel Kaufman, the host of Sophia. Uh, Of course, I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I also publish and edit the Electric Agora. I'm here with my friend John Winner. Um, EJ, you want to say just a couple of things about yourself by way of uh, quick intro biography? Um, I have a doctorate in English. Uh, from SUNY Albany. Um, I spent a lot of time writing novels and poetry. I've been involved in music and uh, performance arts. Um, and I've had about three careers uh, on uh, teaching. Uh, and I was a licensed practical nurse for 12 years. Right now I'm in the security field. So, just for quickly, why did you not pursue a traditional academic career? Um, I didn't want to get involved in the publisher parish cycle. Uh, I have always had issues. I've written an awful lot. I've published very little, uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. But the you know, I generally have written for myself and I just didn't really, I, I, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who can write. And then someone says, well, I need this. I need this. I need this. And, uh, I've gotten better with that over the years, which is, uh, uh, it shows, I hope that shows in some of our energy for the world. But, um, generally, you know, uh, I remember, uh, I sent an essay to the P, uh, PMLA, uh, in my, uh, last year in the graduate program and the, uh, uh, the, they did a peer review of it, uh, and it came back, you know, pretty negative. And I said, said, you know, this, these guys don't know what I'm writing about. <laughs> so I, I said, you know, I, uh, it's, it's suffering. It's suffering. Um, so did you, did you go into the PhD knowing you weren't going to pursue an academic career or did this sort of occur to you as you were doing it? Like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this for a living. Uh, I like teaching and I think one of the things that, uh, was a disappointment for me, uh, it was coming through that program was the discovery that teaching is not very well respected in the academy. Certainly uh, not in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, and I think yeah. that that's that's unfortunate in quite a number of levels, um, because uh, that's what students come to college for. Uh, it's important in terms of you know preserving the traditions um, of of the various faculties uh, of various uh, disciplines. Um, I see. I just see it as more important than. Research is important, but it's important in terms of uh, uh, you know, discovering what 
what it is we need to know as as teachers. Yeah. And what are what gets shared to the students? Yeah. Um, I've actually my, found that I found that I've actually found that I don't really think that I really understand it until I can teach it to somebody. Mm. And so, you know, my writing and scholarship got a lot better as a result of my teaching. You know, I think a lot of people think it only goes the other way. You know, the more research you do, the better teacher you become because you know more. But I actually found that, that, that my knowledge and understanding of philosophy really only really fully comes into its own when I've taught the material. Right. Um, um, and, uh, and so more and more, uh, I'm finding that I'm trying to align what I, what I teach with what I write. And, 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 and so, um, now we, but we here today are not here to talk about high minded, highbrow subjects. Of course, um, we are actually here today to talk about, um, punk rock and um so this all came about like sort of by accident um i wrote an essay uh, a couple of years ago uh called middle-aged punk and it came out through the comments and discussions that you have a very um uh, serious and proud history (laughs) with uh the punk movement and so I thought that um, we would talk about about punk and a whole bunch of things having to do with it, but I very much want to, to hear about and for you to share with us um, your experience with, with punk. Um, uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you came to it, which scene you were in, so on and so forth. Just sort of talk us through your history with, uh, with the genre. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that since we set up this conference. Um it really actually begins before there was ever what we know of as, as punk rock. It actually began with a, um, it was a, uh, one of those late night concert shows. I, I don't know if you remember, I think they may have been, uh, they were in this early seventies. Uh, it was, I think called in concert. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody in, in my, the people I knew had to watch it, uh, especially that night because it was the Allman Brothers. Or the opening act, and the Allman Brothers were very popular here in Rochester, uh, where I was raised. And, um. And where, where were you raised? Rochester, New York. Rochester, New York, gotcha. And so, you know, so we were watching this, the Allman Brothers, very slick, you know, guitar playing, very professional, uh, performance, very cool. The next act was Alice Cooper doing his billion dollar baby show. I said, that's for me. It's a little bit, a little bit different. <laughs> yes, completely different. You know, the, the, the fake uh, uh, decapitation, the blood jetting, you know, these bombs. Um, and, of course, the, the far, far rougher type of music. Um, and, and so that's, that's really kind of the seed was planted. Uh, then later on in uh, 76, yeah, 76, I went down to, um, SUNY Purchase as a student, uh, which is in Westchester. And, uh, I was, uh, reading Village Voice, uh, and they were telling a story about, uh, how, uh, I don't know if you remember these people, Dick, uh, Manitoba, Dick Manitoba of the Destroyers, Dictators, I'm sorry, the Dictators, yeah, yeah. And Wayne County, and they had a flare up at CBGB's, and uh, because Wayne County was, was a transvestite at that time, uh, and so and 
she was performing and county was, uh, I mean, Manitoba was shouting anti, you know, homophobic stuff, slurs at him. Or, uh, and, uh, county picked up her microphone stand and whammed it against <laughs> Manitoba's head, fracturing his skull. He didn't die, fortunately, but, uh, but I said, you know, there's something interesting about the scene here. <laughs> beyond, you know, in the, at this place called CBGB's. And so I started reading more and more of it as when I said, this kind of sounds kind of interesting. And, uh, finally, uh, I think it was in June of that year, uh, they were having a special show, which was actually, was getting taped to become the Live at CBGB's album. Uh, and, uh, I, I went down there, it started early, started around 7 p.m. So I went down there with my girlfriend and, uh, you know, and it was, uh, Blondie, Talking Heads, Meekville, Tough Darts, I think. Uh, and it was just, uh, a fun night. And that's where it sort of started building momentum. And then the next month, uh, the Ramones first album was released. And, you know, I sat there, it's only a half hour long. And I sat there for that half hour completely mesmerized. Yeah, they played 20 songs in a half hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Something I hadn't heard before. I mean, there were roots before that. I mentioned Alice Cooper. Uh, I was a big fan of the Velvet Underground. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether you were into that proto, because people usually think of Alex, Alice Cooper as sort of proto-heavy metal. Um, mm-hmm. And I was wondering whether you were, had been into the MC5 and the New York Dolls and, and, yeah, and yeah. some of these proto, proto-punk bands that, that, you know, the Stooges, um, well, had, had you been into them also, or did you sort of stumble into this by accident through Alice Cooper and then sort of re- retroactively start listening to those? Yeah, it was uh, Alice Cooper led me to listen to hard rock because before Alice Cooper, I was actually listening to the Beach Boys. <laughs> so uh, I, I knew I knew that the Owen Brothers, even though it was, they were popular with my friends, that kind of very professional bluesy rock from the 60s, um, just wasn't where I, my head was at. Uh, so I got, you know, Alice Cooper, you know, Rolling Stones. Um, then, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to, started introducing me to, uh, some, he was a poet. I got involved in poetry scene in Rochester and, and he started introducing me to, uh, Captain Beefheart. And Velvet Underground. I really loved the Velvet Underground. Um, and, uh, especially Sister Ray. I don't know if you remember that 17 minutes of two chords getting played over and over again while Reed is shouting, uh, dirty lyrics. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I, it was a, um, progression towards, and, it, it, you know, knowing that there was an underground rock, um, it became important to me because, you know, I was hearing things that uh, you, you didn't you know that, you know, CCR wasn't playing. Right. And then of course, by the seventies, it started having progressive rock and, you know, Emerson Lake and Palmer and doing the uh, pictures at an exhibition. I mean, how pretentious can you get? Yeah. 
I have to say, I, I have to say, I, I do have a soft spot for prog rock, um, <laughs> and I'll probably wind up writing an essay about it at some point. Um, um, but um, it take, you know, it has an entirely different appeal. <clears throat> you know, so your first, the CBGB's gig was your first actual live punk gig. You weren't hanging out at Max's Kansas City and these other places. No, no, and, and these acts yeah, playing. Right. Okay. So. Uh, yeah. The CBGB's was my first experience with 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 the New York scene. And, and, and aren't you? Didn't you say to tell me once you are you're actually in the picture on the record? Yes, on back uh, the back cover of Live at CBGB's, you'll see right in the center. There's a, a guy with brown hair. Uh, my hair was brown then. In a white shirt with a denim jacket hanging on the back of the chair, uh, and a you can't see her, but you can see her blonde hair. That's my girlfriend. So that's me. I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and find a picture on, of that online, and I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll put it in the links. That we, there's a link section that'll go with this, and I'll put it in. Um, so you came into the New York. Well, I wanted to say. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted want to say one more thing about that photograph. Yeah. Because the the band in that photograph is Talking Heads, and they do not show up on that album because by then the time the album was released, they had already signed with Sire. <laughs> Oh, so, 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 so they were, they were at the, they were in the concert. You watched them. Yeah. The picture's yeah. on the album, but the, 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 the song's not on the album. No. <laughs> that, that's pretty funny. Um, um, so you came into New York punk and sort of what was the original scene. So bands like television, Patty Smith, um, like you said, Blondie before they went sort of new wave, um, talking heads also went new wave. Um, the dictators, the Ramones. Um, how would you? I mean, what would, what was your perception of the scene itself? I mean, how would you characterize the audience, the typical, and, and the sort of the the the, the 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 culture that this represented? How, how would you? How would? How did you see it then? And how how does it appear to you looking back now? Well, when I first got there, it was actually very typical for. Uh, uh, for a local music scene, uh, means that you know there were people there. The, it was very little pretension. Uh, it was all jeans and t-shirts. Um, uh, there was not really a heck of a lot of pressure. There was not a, uh, you weren't pressured to drink lots. Uh, there weren't uh, uh, really that. Heavy drugs, you know, people were smoking grass in the back, but the, you know, it was pretty uh, casual. Um, everything changed by the end of of seventy six and beginning of seventy seven, more so as we go into seventy seven. Uh, if you remember that photograph of uh, from live at CBGB's, Talking Heads is right there on the floor. Because they had a little rise, I think it was six inches high. But, you know, the stage at CBGB's was originally on the floor. You could reach out and touch these people. Uh, by, uh, the January of, uh, 1977, they had a, uh, four foot high stage in the back. Uh, it looked like a, you know, auditorium stage, even though it was very small. But, uh, so there was a big change. There was also a big change to the audience by then. Um, there were a lot of music people, music uh, industry people hanging out there, um, and there was a lot of cocaine uh, going on there. 
a lot of money. There was much more pressure. It was very hard to uh, mingle. Uh, and that was unfortunate for me in many ways. I mean, I did not, the experience did not uh, end happily for me uh, because you know, at that time, uh, I, I was uh, getting more and more into punk as an ethos. Uh, and where that was happening um, was actually, it was no longer happening in New York. It was actually happening in England. So I was uh, eating a lot of British uh, vinyl um, by that time. And most people don't know this, but that, um, the CBGB's crowd did not actually like English punk. They didn't like the politics. They didn't like the more overt violence. Um, they, I don't know, you know, there was less, uh, English punk came with a completely different, uh, one might say a completely different sexual identity. Uh, it was, um, explain that if you don't mind. Okay, if you think of, you think of uh, uh, the women at CBGBs, think of the women stars who came out with CBGBs, Blondie and Patti Smith. And Patti Smith, by the way, actually started before CBGBs. She was actually seventy-five. I think Horses was seventy-five. Am I am yeah, I correct? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she had already been performing in Minnesota. Um But uh, in any event, so. Bondi is intended to be iconic Marilyn Monroe. And she knew that. She played on that. Absolutely. It's where with uh, the girl groups in the 60s. She started with a girl group called the Stilettos. Um, and Patti Smith was kind of the 60s inversion of that, right? I mean, you know, scrawny, uh, male dress, sloppy male dress, and so forth. Yeah, those great Maplethorpe photos of her, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You look at the female punk rockers coming out of England, they're a different race. Yeah, Susie, Susie Sue. Um, right, they have suddenly yeah. white hair. Uh, they, have, they are wearing a ton of makeup. Uh, a lot of it is intentionally smeared. Um, and they are very much overtly take me as I am or go get the fuck away. You know, there, there's no longer any more play on what a woman should look like or act like. My favorite uh, female punks actually don't play punk music, but they were the Slits. Yeah, they were great, man. They were a great band. Yeah, and really of course, their, their iconic song is Typical Girls, where they're lashing out at all the expectations. So it, it was, a, you know, in New York, there's a growing sense that what was happening in England just wasn't the same thing. Um, you know, obviously, by, I think it was, uh, looking it up, it was actually April 77, the Dams started their mini tour of America, which is New York and Los Angeles. Um, and they played CBGBs a couple times, actually. Um, so there was more, but the relationship was, was collegial. In other words, they, they were musicians talking with musicians. They weren't, you know, uh, it was not a, we're punks, you're punks kind of thing. Um, so anyway, by the spring of 77, I was getting heavily into English punk. You know, I had come down to New York City because I had hoped you know, I've always felt like an outsider. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, listening to Velvet Underground 
in Rochester, New York, or uh, yeah, I mean Rochester, New York. People don't realize it's like the Midwest. I mean, I mean, you get out of the city and you start going upstate or you start going west. Rochester, Buffalo. I mean, it's not New York in that sense. Right? I mean, it's, right. people don't realize that. I don't think, but yeah, I mean, you're listening to punk rock in Rochester is not that different from listening to punk rock probably in Springfield, Missouri, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, the, Rochester did develop a music scene for about five years. That's, you know, and I was actually part of that scene, but um, you know, yeah, it's not. This is not very uh, conducive to uh, alternative music forms here. Yeah. Um, so, so let me just ask you because you know we're, we're sort of sliding into the sort of history and geography of of uh, rock. And, but before we get to that, because I do want to talk about New York versus Eng- UK and then back to LA. Right. Um, you said that you were getting into the punk ethos, and that's sort of what yeah. let, let you down a little bit about what the scene. Yeah, because the it, turned into. What, how did you understand the, the punk ethos? What was the ethos you were embracing, and why were you embracing it? Um. It was tough, direct, um, basically, um, I guess that you'd have to, you'd have to kind of, uh, ask what's the difference between, you know, and, and this subject became popular in, 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 in remains an issue to this day, which is, what's the difference between the real punk and the poser? Okay. We'll talk about that too, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so, Richard Hell was a great guy and a great musician. Um, and he's credited with wearing torn t-shirts or, uh, you know, ahead of the British scene. Well, actually, I heard that the Sex Pistols manager directly lifted the Sex Pistols look from Richard Hell. Richard Hell. Yeah. That's yeah. quite, that's quite probable. Yeah. Yeah. And Safety was, pins and, then, and all that sort of, yeah. 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 yeah McLaren was a uh, kind of leech and a parasite. So he <laughs> stealing from other people's kind of thing he did. Uh, so yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, on some level, Hell tended to project being a punk more than actually being a punk. He was actually just a nice guy who, who the, the safety pins was because he was had to jump at a concert one night and his clothes tore. And, you know, that's you know, basically it was just right. It wasn't on purpose, right? <laughs> it was like, so. <laughs> right, exactly. <clears throat> and so I wouldn't say he was a poser, but there's certainly a, a certain amount. There was a lot of posing that went on in CBGBs. A lot of posing. I'll give you one clue. Uh, uh, my fondest memory of Blondie uh, from that night uh, uh, of the uh, CBGB's live concert. <clears throat> uh, they were performing uh, a certain form. I think they were performing uh, Exit Thunder. And in the middle of it, her sunglasses fell off. And she stopped the song in order to pick up her sunglasses. <laughs> song without sunglasses. Yeah, I can't get- Fuck this show must go on business. I gotta get my sunglasses back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's and then whereas I think in 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 real punk as non poser punk or non you know, it's hard to call Blondie a poser or Richard Hell a poser. They they believed in something what they were doing, but they also were looking ahead, they were hoping 
on some level to be become stars. Whereas I think, you know, when the Sex Pistols come up, and the Clash following them and the Damned, you know, these people don't care if they're going to become stars. They, there's an element of, of um, the, you know, we're doing this because this is us. And take it or leave it. Uh, and I, that's, that's the punk ethos. It's really, you don't like me, fuck off. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. You know, uh, the New York, the original New York punk scene, and I guess the, the Ramones would be an exception to this, right? Um, but my impression of the original New York punk scene was that it is essentially was an offshoot of the, of the art scene. Mm. Is that the, look, I mean, television is not a punk band in any normal sense of the word, right? I mean, television was really pretty musically sophisticated advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, um, you know, Blondie was more fun, you know, more like a fun going band. Um, um, you know, their first two records uh, are completely different from, from what comes after. Um, um, you can't even, you can't even believe it's the same band, but it was, you know, it was, it was, Patty Smith was certainly an art, an artist. Um, all the people that were coming out of the, 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 the Warhol, the Warhol factory, right? The, 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 the Velvet Underground follow-ups right. were all arts people. Whereas the, the, the scene in the UK was, came out, it was political, right? I mean, it came out, yes. I mean, it came out of the, just the wretched, uh, economic conditions yes. of England in the seventies. I mean, New York was a shithole in the seventies. Yeah. But England was a whole different kind of fucked up in the seventies, yeah. um, and um, 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 the the it, it was much more of a working class revolt, right? I mean, it was anything yeah. but an arts scene, right? Yeah, I think you know, there's a couple things to say here. First of all, you're right. Let's, let's make sure you're all completely right about England and and the difference between the fuck up in England versus the fuck up in New York. You could always move out of New York. You cannot move out. You can't move out of England. The whole, the whole country's fucked, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, so these kids in, in England at the time, they were stuck. And they knew it, right? Um, and that's... Uh, um, and the other thing to say is, yeah, as far as the arts... stopping, Richard Hell went to New York to become a poet. Uh, Tom Verlaine met Patti Smith because he was writing poetry. She was writing poetry. Um, you know, uh, Lou Reed came out of Syracuse University to become a poet, you know, and ended up on meth and heroin and, and learned how to sort of play his guitar. <laughs> That's not fair, actually. He was sort of. Part of. He was part of rock bands before that. But, um, uh, in other words, there's poetry and the art is back there. You're right. Uh, in, in terms of the scene, there were bands that, couldn't care less about poetry of the arts, um, but there were an awful lot of would-be poets in, in New York. Uh, whereas, you know, I can't think of any in Bernstein. I mean, it's not that they weren't, but they, that, that wasn't what they were doing. Right. Uh, and then that carries over in terms of when we get to Los Angeles, of course, because, you know, again, the scene in Los Angeles itself there are a lot of people going there to become part of the arts scene. Or yeah. scene. I almost think this, it's funny. I mean, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter if we front load this a little bit, but I was almost wondering whether there's a kind of a cycle that you see happen, uh, in both, both in New York, um, and in LA. And that is that the first wave of punks is, a, is an art scene. 
And then the second wave is something very different. Um, um, so, you know, the difference between the first generation of punks in Los Angeles, so it would be bands like X and um, um, uh, uh, the Screamers, um, compared to the next generation, you know, Black Flag um, um, and TSOL and stuff is, is a completely different animal. Uh, representing a very, very different sort of ethos. Yeah. And, I, and I'm wondering whether there's something interesting in that sort of, in that cyclical or whether it corresponds maybe to the difference between urban and suburban, um, um, which maybe we can talk about. But the thing about England is interesting. I mean, so the first wave of English punk is the Sex Pistols, the Damned, the Buzzcocks, and the Clash, right? I mean, that's the first round. Yeah. And I guess you could split it up, right? I mean, the damned and the buzzcocks were not particularly political, right? I mean, they were just more like uh, right. a, a fun and a fun, cha- fun and chaos. <laughs> but the Sex Pistols and obviously the Clash um, were, were were political. Um, were you fans of all these? Did you lean more towards the political punk from the UK? I personally was a damned fan. I mean, to me, the damned right. were, the, were the best of all of them, and had the longest legs. It seemed to me. Um, but I don't, because they had, they went through a goth phase. They went through, um, um, but how did you, was it, what, what, what was the first stuff that appealed to you? Was it the Sex Pistols or was it, uh, the Clash or what did you get into? I think I'm trying to, I think the first greatest single I heard was, uh, 1977 White Riot, uh, by the Clash. Uh, and, and I, White, uh, White Riot was more interesting than 1977. 1977 pulls a lot to the kinks. Um, yeah. White Riot is, is definitely something new. Uh, and then I heard the Six Pistols and it was, you know, um, but that's, it, it's hard to explain why that is such a unique record or why Nevermind the Bullets is such a unique album. Um, because it is, you want to say, well, this is the roughest piece of crap coming out of my audio, my, you know, out of my stereo. But then when you listen to it carefully, it's actually wonderfully engineered. Uh, and and um, Steve Jones, the guitar player, is, is, is who also played the bass on the album because Sid Vicious was, you know, um, he, was, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, and so it's 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 a really bizarre combination of complete spit in your face and um, uh, excellent musicianship um, and I think that's one of the things that, that struck me that that there was a, a sense that that what was happening in Britain was new but it could grow uh, and I think that's true about you know it became very obvious by the second album that the Ramones were never going to grow yeah, the Ramones were just that, that's what they do and that's all that they right. do. Right, exactly. And um um I think that the Ramones influence was primarily what we would call sort of formal, right? Um 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 because you know what it was about was really just about sort of, you know, jaded jaded youth. Um um right. um and um but it was the speed and the and the and the lack of a traditional song structure I think that really was what their legacy was on the what their what their impact was on the genre, um, and they they were successful in England. I mean, the, the the Ramones went over there, 
And from all the all the documentaries I've watched on British punk, all those original punk bands were saying, "Yeah, the Ramones blew everybody away." They, yeah. it, it, it was, and so I do think that the, the Pistols and then those other bands were clearly influenced by them formally, but substance wise. So were you were you did you were you attracted to the political side of the British punk? Was that was that? I think by I think I came to see punk as through through the British link uh, what was happening in Britain as punk is necessarily political all of it is political on some level you know uh, the damned are are political because they you know they are anarchists they live anarchy they're they're not anarchists theoretically they right. yeah so there is a, there's a politics there whether you know and the buscacks had a you know had a certain politics too it's it's, it's, it's very different but but it's also the sense of, because that's what, you know, punk is essentially about is, um, I don't want to fit. It's, it's anti-conformist. It's fundamentally, yeah. it's fundamentally anti-conformist. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, go on. No, well, I was just about to say that going back to what you were saying about, you know, the cycle between, you know, the art scene followed by, you know, the hardcore scenes call it. Um, that's because the art scene comes up, it, it gets popular, and suddenly it is defining what it means to be cool, right? And so you're going to have it with someone saying, ah, screw that cool. You know, I'm going to do it completely different. Right. And, and the minute there's any whiff of establishment about it, yeah. it completely loses its punk credibility. And then what comes after it, it has to be it has to be the opposite, so to speak, is, is what you're saying. Right. Right. Um, 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 and maybe that's a sort of an internal inherent um, limitation, right? Um, um, and I guess the really successful hardcore is so appalling and obnoxious that it can it simply cannot ever become establishment, right? right. Um, um, although I have to tell you, I mean. If you look on the metal side of things, th- th- there's a level of kind of extreme metal now that's relatively mainstreamed. Mm. That um, that that makes me wonder whether uh, uh, there's nothing that capitalism is not capable of dige- <laughs> of digesting yeah. and turning into something. You know, when you see when you when you hear Who songs playing on Cadillac commercials. You kind of realize the devastating power of, of, of sort of the capitalist machine to simply absorb everything, including the most countercultural. And the, the whole sixties got co-opted in that way. You know what I mean? Um, um, and, um, you know, to me, and maybe we're just, I'm flailing around a little bit, but, but, but it just occurred to me, to me, and I wrote this in my essay that the appeal of punk to me was that it was, it was political, but not partisan. In other words, the reason I liked, like a band like the Dead Kennedys, right? Mm-hmm. They skewer liberals as as much as they go after Ronald Reagan, right? Um, um, and then they sort of they sort of understood that 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 the establishment can co opt any party, right? I mean, it can it can it can it can it can absorb any politics, and so to me, the punk punk at its core had to be kind of anarchic. It had to be. Mm-hmm something that could not be bottled no matter what, um, no matter what the, 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 
the corporate masters could cook up with it. But I'm starting to wonder whether I was wrong about that, whether there isn't anything that the corporate masters can't consume. I mean, they even consumed hardcore rap, which in many ways was for the, for the black community, very similar to what punk was for the, for the, for the, for the, for the, for the largely white community. Um, I don't know how you feel about all that. Uh, so we live in a capitalist culture by nature. That's the air we breathe here. I think that if the value of having a counterculture or subculture, I mean, obviously the whole cultural revolution of the 60s uh, was misguided. On someone they did take over. We're all listening to rock and roll, right? Uh, um, so they did take over, but it didn't actually change anything. Uh, I think the real value of, of developing a subculture um, is, you know, I, I, and I don't know if you can sustain this simply on music or fashion alone. Um, my guess is that it probably involves uh, underground um underground economy like drug, drug culture. The value of, of sustaining a subculture uh, is not in, well, you know, I'm not going to sell out because you are going to sell out. Guess what? That's what we do here. The, the question is whether you can deter, make terms, decide what terms you're going to sell on on so that, you know, at what point you can say, yeah, all right, I sold out. So what? You know, that's, that's what happens here. Yeah, that, no, that's really very interesting, and, and and I like the point about what you just said was that you know what's essential to a subculture or a counterculture, and can it entirely exist within, let's say, an artistic framework like the music, like through music? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know if you if you, I'm, I'm sure you've read it, but whether you remember this part of it, but in Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Thompson's very critical of the counterculture. Mm. Um, I mean, he's obviously very critical of Nixon, um, who's his sort of arch nemesis. Mm. But, but the whole second half of the book, he just absolutely slams the counterculture. And, mm-hmm. and part of it is that he says, look, it never really ever became something serious, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it was all about getting high and having fun and right. thinking that just a display of a lifestyle was going to transform the country, but that what had to be done was hard-nosed politics, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what they didn't do, which is why he kind of admired, I think, the SDS leftists a lot more than he, than he, than he, than, than he admired the, the hippies. Um, and I wonder if, if, if there's a general truth there um, about about countercultures in general, because what I was going to ask you was, but you know, you described the the punk ethos and, and uh, very much as a countercultural ethos. Mm. Why is it so different from the '60s counterculture? I mean, you couldn't even imagine that these are both countercultural in the same country, only a decade <laughs> apart, right? Why did the why, in what way was the punk counterculture supposed to be, or in fact, different? From the '60s counterculture, do you have a feeling or view about that? Um, How are punks different from hippies? Well, the, the, that's an interesting. I, I think one of the things that made the punks of the early '70s, you know, my uh, New York uh, punks, um, was that uh, we felt uh, uh, cheated out of the counterculture of the '60s. You know, How so? 
There were, there were no more uh, orgies going on. Oh. <laughs> LSD, LSD was not free, right? There was no, uh, you know, no. There were festivals going on, but they were again with with the Eagles uh, in a big arena, that kind of thing. And it was just you know, not. So we got cheated. We we didn't have any fun during the sixties, later sixties. Because we were uh, five to ten years younger than than, than the hippies, um, but I think it's also that you start from uh, if you go back. Uh, one thing that makes Velvet Underground proto punk band is that they're all wearing black. It's, there's no sense of flowers, you know. If, yeah. Remember what's that song, San Francisco? Uh, uh, wear a flower in your hair. I can't remember the <laughs> California dreaming on such a winter's day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, no, come on. Get, what are the basics? What what are the basics? And that is one thing I think that uh, a, little, a number of the New York bands, certainly the Ramones, uh, early Blondie, uh, early Talking Heads, uh, did share with what was come afterwards. The sense of what are the basics? What's the basic? What do you need to do a song? What do you need to do a rock song? What do you need to wear? Um, and, and really, you don't need much. Uh, so once you, whereas you know, the culture culture of the sixties was flowers everywhere, and everybody's sitting in cushions, and, psychedelics, and, and yeah, 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 and and uh, they they want to, you know, when they have a a dinner shared. Communal dinner, it's a feast. Whereas, uh, uh, you know, punk rock dinners, you're lucky if you have scandals, right? <laughs> um, you know, um, it was a, it was a class element, right? I mean, I mean, the, 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 the hippies were, were essentially middle class, right? Yes. Um, um, and the, uh, the, the, the punks were living in, or at least the original ones were living in sort of these urbanly blighted areas, you know, mm-hmm. rat infested tenements and, 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 and very much the way that the, um, the, the painters were in the, in the forties and fifties, right? I mean, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they very much lived like the abstract expressionists did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and what were essentially slums. Um, um, and that know, was more I, true in England than, than New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I, I you know, I wonder with terms of the, the sixties versus you know, the, the hippies versus the punks, I wonder whether also, the punks had a certain benefit of hindsight. It's sort of like, you know, the, the sick, the hippies were still could imagine the idea that you could affect a cultural transformation, um, oh, yeah. through, through positive energy. Right. <laughs> um, um, and once the sort of the full weight of Vietnam and then Watergate sank in, right. I think it produced a much more nihilistic, conception of 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 countercultural rebellion right i mean it just wasn't it just wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't fly right by the time you get to 1974 75 you know to try and suggest that you could affect this change you're going to change the silent majority through through sort of you know sort of smiling and smiley faces and 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 everybody tripping on acid was just not credible anymore right yeah that's uh, going back to the whole question of what constitutes a subculture versus counterculture um, yeah, uh, uh, subcultures survive because the participants um, say nothing's going to change out there. 
we're going to do this in here because nothing's going to change out there. So, you know, you know punk rock is a, a, as a subculture. Uh, and it's, it's a loose one because, you know, for a lot of punk rockers, as soon as they get kids, that's the end of it. Uh, but, um, it's about where do we gather, you know, as opposed to, you know, we're, we're not going to throw, uh, overthrow the government. Nobody's going to overthrow the government. It's just a question of where do we gather in order to talk about it? Right. Maybe about the government, maybe about economics, maybe about music. Where do we gather? Um, and that's the what punk, the punks were much less ambitious. They didn't even, they, yeah. they had no conception well, of transforming the larger culture, right? Right, right. And, and when you say less ambitious, the original punks, I mean, this one of the things that led me to, to uh, break off from the New York scene. Uh, was that it was becoming more and more obvious by, by spring of 77 that uh, a lot of those bands wanted to become rock stars. Uh, like and they said, did. And they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Blondie talking heads. Um, and, and like I said, the English, you know, I mean, the Sex Pistols released one album. Malcolm and Clarem totally ripped them off. They ended up living homeless, <laughs> you know, for a couple of years. Um, you know, but there was no, and the the clash did become stars and immediately broke up because they didn't yeah. want. To, you yeah, know. they they became very popular too. I remember when uh, the album Combat Rock came out mm-hmm. in the eighties. I mean, Rock the Casbah was on MTV twenty four seven. Yeah, and it just you know the minute that happens, you just not <laughs> credible as punks anymore, right? I mean, you just right, right, exactly. not. Um, and then you yeah. either have to turn into something else. Right. Or you just, or you, or you disintegrate, right? I mean, Blondie turned into something else, um, but I, the Clash really couldn't. I mean, because the Clash really were political, yeah. Um, and once they became an MTV band, I mean, that just sort of—I don't know whether—I I, I don't know whether internally they were just sort of disgusted with themselves, or whether they um, just were despairing on what they I, had caught yeah, up. In. By, yeah, yeah. By the time of Combat Rock. Uh, Joe Strummer and uh, Mick. Mick Jones. Mick Jones, thanks. Um, they were at each other's throats. And uh, Paul, the uh, bass player, was, was junkie completely. He was actually not, not there anymore. Uh, so, yeah, the band, they, they couldn't sustain it. it, it, it you know, Strummer especially did not want to be a star. Uh, Jones went off and uh, did something else. Uh, and enjoyed uh, an additional con- uh, career. Strummer did not. Um, but, yeah, they, they couldn't sustain it. Once they got to that point where they were actually playing arenas, I mean, what does what it mean to sing White Riot in an arena? It doesn't make sense. Anymore. No, 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 you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So we've got the, the first original punks is the New York art scene, and... It's pretty much exhausted by 77, um, 78. Um, the second round comes out of the UK as that, that first wave of bands, the Sex Pistols, the Buzzcocks, Damned, Clash. It winds up exhausting itself within a few years. Um, um, and, and then the third, I thought the third sort of big pull of, 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 of punk was in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, um, again, you had an original gr- set of bands that were in the city, were in Hollywood, um, and they were an art scene. Um, so the, 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 the sort of the leader of them all was the band X. Um, and 
very much like Patti Smith, Exine Cervenka was a poet, right? I mean, that's how, and, you know, and she and John Doe, you know, wrote these, inc- you know, she, she would write these lyrics. She had knew nothing about music, and John Doe had all this music he'd written, and he would just fit the lyrics in. And um, it was very much, uh, uh, this is something that you said to me in our private correspondence. I'd asked you, that there's, John Doe recently published a book about the L.A. punk scene that I asked you to read. Yeah. And you'd said that one of the things that struck you was that there was much more of a community in the original L.A. punk scene than in New York. Could you say something about that? that um, was, was the New York punk scene not a community? I always got the impression that these people were all hanging out in the same places. In what sense did you find the, the, the story of the original L.A. punk scene uh, more communal than the scene? Well, they, actually lived, they, they actually lived in the same neighborhoods, which yeah. is the case in New York. I mean, their their moans uh, lived in Queens. Um, a lot of a uh, number of the bands uh, uh, either came out of New Jersey, or in which case they would go back to New Jersey, uh, or they you know they came out of. I think Hell lived in New York. Verlaine lived in New York. Uh, I mean Manhattan, uh, uh, and. Uh, I think the New York Dows lived in Manhattan. When a lot of these bands were, uh, the dictators came out of Long Island. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of these bands would come to CBGB's play and, and disappear, and, and they would waft in and out. I mean, they would come in to watch each other play at CBGB's, you know, um, but there was no sense of living next door. Yeah. And Los Angeles. Yeah, the L.A. scene, the, these people were actually physically living together. I mean, yeah. so you had the Canterbury apartment complex where, like, half the bands were living in there. Um, mm-hmm. And it was right next to the clubs that they were playing in, like the Mask. Um, and then there was another sort of place, the church, which is where Black, where Black Flag lived. And there was a whole bunch of whole community around there. And mm-hmm. so you're right in the sense that they were they were um, they were they were uh, a more intimate, I guess, a more intimate group um, uh, of people. But interestingly enough, you know that art scene um, quickly also exhausted itself, um, um, partly through drug abuse. So you know, Darby Crash of the Germs dies of an overdose. Um, um, I, I forget who another one died of an overdose. I forget whom. Um, and the scene kind of. Uh, started to disintegrate, and then you get the the Orange County invasion, and that's where the hardcore the hardcore punks come from. So that's you know everything from Black Flag to the Adolescents to TSOL um, and the Minutemen, and um, it was interesting in the book to re- you could really tell the resentment, right? The, the original punks acted as if the, the the suburban meatheads had come in and ruined their scene. <laughs> And I, I sort of found that kind of striking. Um, um, and I don't think anything similar happened in New York, because New York also developed a hardcore scene afterwards. Right. But I never got a sense of there being sort of open hostility between the two communities or the two communities or one community blaming the other for ruining the scene. You didn't hear anything like that in New York, did you? Mm, not, no, talk. not the time that I was there, but like I said, uh, remember. When did you leave um, the scene? The scene had was first of all I was becoming an outsider again because of my interest in British punk. Uh, like I said, uh, most New Yorkers, even though they didn't talk about, it, did not like British punk. Um, so I was becoming an outsider again. Uh, it was clear these bands, you know, I was. This is why I say punk ethos. Punk ethos does not 
say, there's nothing in the public health that says I'm going to become a rock star. Right. Because on the contrary, there's something wrong if I... If I'm becoming a rock star, I better look at myself because there's something wrong with it. Whereas it was becoming more clear that the New York bands wanted to be rock stars. There was a lot of posing and, and uh, silliness going on. Um, and I just did not, uh, like I said, I, I ended up feeling like a, an outsider again and really had a retreat with myself. I actually got very heavily into reggae, uh, you know, started meeting Jamaicans and where I've you know, found people who accepted me again. And that's what I was looking for. That's what I think, uh, uh, punk rock offers a lot of people is, is, is a lot of people go into punk rock because they have damaged childhoods. And there was no doubt that I had a damaged childhood. Uh, and there's some sense, and part of that damage isn't simply in the family, but it bleeds into school experiences. And there was just something, uh, that where everybody's looking at you and going, you know, you're, you're just weird. Your tastes are weird. You know, what are you doing? What you're doing is weird. And so you find, you're trying to find people who say, Hey, weirdness is good. That's fine. You know, um, so, uh, and by when I first came into New York City, I kind of felt that I was really hoping that. And like I say, by the time I left, it was that was gone. So what the, the years in which you left this? So you left right around seventy eight. Seventy, uh, yes, seven, you're towards the end of seventy seven. Um, and then did you also physically leave? Did you leave the city? Yeah. Period. And what you went yeah. back to Rochester? Yeah, and and uh, stayed with my mom while I was looking for a job. Gotcha. So it's really interesting you mentioned reggae because. The New York hardcore scene was actually imported, right? So New York hardcore is the result of the bad brains moving from D.C. to New York, right? You, you watch, and I'm going to link to all this in the, uh, in, the, in the link section, but there's an amazing documentary, which I also had you watch, on New York hardcore. Um, and every single band from that scene, the Cro-Mags, uh, Agnostic Front, um, um, uh, uh, Reagan Youth, all these bands will tell you that New York Hardcore was born out of the Bad Brains moving to New York City. And the Bad Brains, of course, um, had, a, had a heavily reggae component. Into, and the reason I'm saying this, it's sort of ironic. If you just stayed a little bit longer, right? <laughs> that whole punk scene was got revitalized. Yeah, and you yeah. might have felt at home in it again. You know what I mean? <laughs> were you aware when you were you aware of the Bad Brains and what they had brought to to New York punk, or was that something you didn't become aware to till way later? And you reading history? It, it was that? later. It wasn't way later, but it was later. Um, you know, I, I like I said, I, I moved out of New York, listened to a lot of reggae, hung out with Jamaicans. Um, and uh, for a while, would not listen to any, certainly would not listen to any of the New York bands, just would not listen to them, because it was just like, uh, and I watched them become famous and rich. Yeah, it hurt, it hurt, it hurt you to listen to that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just like, yeah, this is this is not what I signed up for. Um, but I continued to listen to, to, to British punk, and... Uh, and boy, when that happened, uh, um, boy, for those who don't know, is a cocky way of saying hey, and it was a later punk revival, I guess you would call it, maybe it's really a great band. I just have to mention the name, Sham 69, one, one of the great. Which, say it again? Sham 69, 
one of the great bands that, that need to be listened to again. Um, but anyway, so I, I kept the first of what was happening in Britain. I had some sense because singles were not coming out of Los Angeles and, you know, flooding the marketplace in Rochester. <laughs> so so I, you weren't hearing, you weren't hearing Black Flag. You weren't hearing. No, not uh, originally. I did hear the Dills. Dills, somehow I got a hold of uh, a copy of, uh, I Hate the Root. Uh, and I said, yeah, finally somebody's doing it the way it's supposed to be done. <laughs> um, but no, I did not hear a lot of the, the uh, LA scene until, until um, I think I picked up the uh, soundtrack for uh, the decline of Western civilization. Yeah, I think that was a lot of people's first because people have to remember there was no internet. Right. So the way you found shit out was either you read fanzines, uh-huh. or every now and then there was some major popular culture thing that would would give everyone like a bird's eye view into some scene, right? Right. You had the Decline of Western Civilization documentary. That was one. And then there was another one. I don't know if you saw this one called Erg, A Music War. The, uh, I remember it, but I don't know. If- it was produced by Miles yeah, Copeland, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, it okay. had everybody, yeah, in, including a lot of the hardcore bands, but then also bands like The Police, um, <laughs> bands yeah. like The Go-Go's, which by then had made it, because The Go-Go's originally were one of the original first-wave punk bands in L.A., and then yeah. they eventually made it so to speak and became a pop band uh, a new wave band um um but yeah i mean that's the only way you would find these things out is is if is if either through fanzines or through a friend or an older brother or whatever who was into it or through the very rare occasion that the mainstream media would 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 get get this get this subculture into its attention for a minute and so you might see something in the mainstream press um, but otherwise, you just wouldn't know these things were happening. And uh, no, you had to be you had to be lucky. Um, in Rochester, we have two. We had at that time two important uh, music stores. One was the House of Guitars, still quite famous, um, and the other was uh, the Record Archive, which was just starting up at that time. And the Record Archive, because they didn't really at that time know what they wanted to do, uh, so they would. That's where I got the deals, right? Uh, because so they would sample, they would sample different record labels, trying to figure out because they were an independent record store, uh, and um, which means they they weren't getting orders from Chicago, you know, sell this product. Uh, so so, but you had to get lucky. You had to be there on the right day, you know, before somebody else got that record. You know, yeah, because they, they would only get like five or ten uh, sampling the market. Um, and uh, the uh, the House of Guitars, their record selection was uh, a huge mess. I mean, they just tossed the records. You had to, you had to literally look through all of it to find one. <laughs> yeah, right. There was no, they didn't list by categories alphabetically or anything. They just tossed them in the back. Oh, the record. You know? Right, right, right. So you had to get lucky. You had to get lucky. And I did get lucky in, uh, a number of times. But, um, yeah, there's, there was no other way to. Now we had, I mean, I'm saying there is one. Other, there was one other way that you'd become aware, and that is, we did have some radio stations that would play this stuff, and so we there, there was one major radio station was actually a Long Island radio station called WLIR that played punk, post punk, um, alternative. What was then alternative new new wave? New wave originally did not mean what it came to mean. Um, 
and there was also college radio. Now, did did you, did you have none of that in Rochester? Uh, there wasn't a college radio station that would play this sort of alternative. We had uh, w, uh, no initially. Initially, in the middle seventies, middle later seventies, the answer is no. It wasn't until about seventy nine, eighty that the WITR uh, coming out of uh, Rochester Institute of Technology started playing alternative music. Um, but no, it, it was alternative music uh, on the radio of, throughout the seventies was uh, a uh, heavy metal AM station called WSAY, uh, which which did some really wonderful stuff. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, there was not a lot of alternative radio. And, yeah. yeah. We, we had a, we had a local, uh, we had a the Long Island university. The flagship campus is called CW post and they had a radio station called WCWP and it was a metal station, but at the time, so this would have been, you know, the early eighties, they were playing what was what's called the new wave of British heavy metal, um, mm-hmm. and which was very punk inflected, right? So it was bands like Motorhead, the early Iron Maiden, um, before it became the sort of operatic proggy sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The early Iron Maiden was very very fast and stripped down, and the singer was very much a a punk style singer. And so you could just hear the most obscure shit on the radio um, um, by listening to this station. But you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it. You know, FM radio only really comes into only comes into existence in the 1970s, and this whole phenomenon of alternative and college stations and all of that—you're right. I mean, it really is only starts in the early oh, '80s, in the early yeah. '80s for the most part. Yeah, the hard rock station, FM station, uh, WCMF. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember in '76, '77. You know, uh, the one of their most famous DJs saying, you know, I'm never going to play that punk shit. You know, it's just, no, they, they, they and I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're now familiar. I mean, thanks to, um, Nirvana going mainstream, uh, and then later Green Day, we're now familiar with that sound, uh, in mainstream culture. We have to put yourself back to realize, I mean, when I played the first Ramones album for my girlfriend at the time, he jumped up and said, "This, this is rock disco!" and tore it and ran out of the room. <laughs> and what she meant by that is, it's so simple. And it's just like, blah, blah, yeah. Blah, 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 you know, yeah. Uh, it was offensive. I mean, it was ag- aggressive. It was offensive. It was not intended to make you feel good. Uh, it was intended to, to wake you up. And, you know, one of the other things between differences between England and, uh, and, uh, New York, by the way, which I realized when I saw the damned at CBGB's, was it was also intended to make you dance. What, you saw the damned at CBGB's? Yeah. God, you fucking lucky. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was everything that, you know, everything that I thought it should be. Uh, you know, um, you know, the, uh, Captain Sensible was, you know, fell down on the stage playing his bass. Who was the lead singer's name again? Dave Vanian. Yeah, Vanian. He was, he was, uh, jumping, literally jumping, uh, from, from one, uh, speaker column to the next. Uh, the drummer ended by kicking his drum set apart. But the main thing was that I realized 
watching them, they, they kept saying, get up and dance. You know, because the CDGBs, nobody danced. Yeah. They, they, they didn't even pogo. They didn't even really pogo, did they? No, no, no. Yeah. Whereas, whereas on the contrary, uh, that's what was happening in, in England. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, um, yeah, I think going forward, uh, it, so it was supposed to get you to dance. It was supposed to be about finding an alternative way to enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you know, by the time I started, I started going to CBGBs in the '80s, and so by then the scene was hardcore, and by then they were, you know, they were they were slamming. I mean, you know, it was it was it was that um, 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 style of thing, and um, um, but um, you know, something something you said struck me, and and, and I want to just uh, get, talk about this before we get to the last subject, um, and that is the difference between the, the, the sort of the, the personal route of punk and then the political route. So you said something earlier that was sort of interesting to me that a lot of the people who came into punk were, came from damaged, were, were damaged childhoods. Yes. Um, and um, I always felt that, that punk's legs operated really at that level, not at the political level. I, I mean, yes, in England, it was England was a very specific, it seems to me, situation politically in terms of, of, mm-hmm. of a perfect combination of forces to create this moment when a, pol- a really political uh, 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 alternative music culture could arise. But it seems to me that the perennial sort of uh, appeal of punk is at the personal level, right? Yes. Um, um, and I think part of the reason why punk went hardcore in the u.s um has to do with the fact that the u.s it became very clear that the the normative standard in the u.s was the suburban right Mm -hmm. um um and you know there's a very different kind of 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 oppression that happens in the suburbs you know the, the it's middle class you're not poor you're not living in a roach infested tenement right but what it is is culturally absolutely stifling Right, it, yes. it's absolutely conf- it's conformist in a way. So in that sense, I think that the original punks, the the urban punks, had it easier, right? Because they were largely in a supportive environment. They were surrounded by other artists. Mm-hmm. They were in an urban environment, right? Whereas the kids coming out of Orange County and Hermano Beach and all these places, I mean, they're living behind the fucking orange curtain. I mean, they're living in Republican yeah. land. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just wondered if you if you what you think about in terms of the 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 relevant importance of the sort of the per, the, the personal the sense in which punk is kind of a revolt against the kind of a, a, a personal sort of oppression as opposed to, to to punk as an expression of a political orientation. Well, um, I. You know, during the Middle Ages, they had a kind of very strong notion of reasoning by analogy, right? Is at the top of creation. Being is at the top of the nation. The dad is at the top of the family, and and that was nature. That was how it was supposed to be. That's in Aristotle's politics. It's just straight out of it, right? He directly draws the line from the family to the state, to the city state. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so in a sense, I think a lot of punks have that model in their mind 
they get abused by dad, and then they look out at the state, and they're getting abused by the state, you know, and they look out the universe, and they're getting fucked by the universe, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that's, that's, that's part of it, part of the, the, not only the politics, but I guess now I've stumbled onto the metaphysics of punk. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, to the extent to which it's political, it's, it's resenting the state as a kind of a giant dad. Right. Yeah. It's not <laughs> as political. It's not political quite. In other words, I never thought other than the clash aside and even there, I never really thought that punk struck me as particularly Marxist. Right. No, no. It's stri- it's, stri- it's it's a kind of a, res- a, re- a resentment of politics, sort of like the way you resent your parents, right? No. Um, 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 and 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 I think when it tries to get too much like politics, it actually can get a little heavy-handed, and it doesn't quite no. come off right. Um, 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 and maybe that's why I maybe like the damned a little better than the Clash. Is I don't know that I really responded that much to the overt politics of the Clash. Um, uh, it was more, I was more just appealed to the sort of the, 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 the instinctive reaction or the re- instinctive rebellion against just authority generically. Well, I think the clash is in, in, in their defense. When you think about it, did the clash ever, they talked Marxist, but is there, you know, actually a Marxism in their music? I would say probably not. Well, I mean, they had an album called Sandinista, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were definitely supportive of movements, but, um, but I, at, at their, at their best, which, you know, in their earliest years, uh, I think they're more an expression of outrage. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. And I was, I really wasn't, I wasn't criticizing them. I was just sort of, sort of saying that the, the, what really always resonated with me was not the, the overtly political, but, but the political as kind of an expression of a kind of a general resistance of authority. Yeah. Um, it, and you know, and conf- cultural conformity, right? Right. And when the, at the, you know, in the seventies, I was, uh, you know, I was an openly an anarchist. And I stopped being an anarchist around 1990. I actually was getting through my doctoral program. I was reading John Dewey and thinking, thinking about democracy and, and uh, the possibility of social democracy in a different way than I had been hearing about for the previous uh, 20 years or so. Uh, um, but I was an anarchist in the 70s. Uh, and anarchy as a theory um, isn't actually that interesting. What's interesting about anarchy is, is when it gets practiced, practiced by people who aren't even thinking about it. And I think uh, that's what, what punk at its liveliest uh, is, is really about. It's about practicing anarchy without knowing what the hell you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. It's but it's much more potent to look at that picture of the guy, the people from Black Flag throwing the throwing the brick through the car window yeah. than it is to hear somebody talking about uh, yes uh, anarchy. Um, okay. Um, okay, so this just brings us to the last thing I wanted to talk about, <clears throat> um, and that is 
is punk something that belongs to a particular time and place, which means in a sense that it's over? Or is punk something that's perennial? Um, um, and um, there are actually documentaries about this. There's been a series of documentaries called Punk's Not Dead, which yeah. tried to sort of, you know, show how there's, a, you know, how punk is still alive today. Right. Right. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, I have my own views of this. So I'm going to ask you to talk to two things. One, is it bound to a particular time and place? And two, is it essentially music for the young? In other words, is the idea of a middle-aged punk simply not uh, not a plausible idea? So uh, I'd be interested in your views on both of those things. A, does it belong to this period, basically, of the 70s and the 80s? Um, uh, and two, is it something that really is only uh, for the young? Well, you know, I'll address the second one first because I can do that very quickly. I think rock and roll is essentially for the young. You know, okay. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, part of what happened to the counterculture is it became mainstream and, you know, everybody grew up. Uh, and some we've seen, you know, uh, Jerry Garcia with gray hair and, and uh, uh, Louis because go straight and sober and Cam Beefart actually retired and became a painter. Um, but part of I think, what, I think Grace Slick did that too. Yeah. He became a painter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of what's going on there is that, you know, rock and roll was, is a new phenomenon in the sense that um, in the fifties we had a redefinition of what it meant to be adolescent. Uh, and there was suddenly a music for it that came came out of blues, but it wasn't the blues. Uh, and it was targeted at young people. Uh, and um, it's what young people wanted to hear. Uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, that's one thing you always have to remember is talking about music is that musicians are, you know, any music will become known if it is addressing something people want to hear, uh, you, know, you don't, you can't force someone to listen to something you don't want to hear. That. So it, there was an audience, uh, you know, because again, I think adolescence had been redefined in the fifties, uh, and rock and roll is music, and uh, rock has, you know, remains pretty much music or pop music now because I, rock per se is is middle aged it's mostly uh, older people who are interested in rock young people are you know I mean I, I, young people apparently like Justin Bieber I don't understand it but you know so but there's music for young people and uh, there's no doubt in my mind that basically rock and roll is teenagers. So, Wait, so let me, let, before you go to the second thing, which is about the the time period, I, I just want to. Um, so I wrote that essay, middle aged punk, and um, you know, I, I want to agree with you, but I also desperately don't want to agree with you. <laughs> Maybe people will interpret that as me. This is my way of having a midlife crisis. <laughs> but I actually listen to more punk now than I did when I was sixteen years old, yeah. and 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 I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean. It's only now that I realize I'm really coming to fully realize just what how much bullshit the so-called adult world is, right? 
um, um, it's only really now that I fully appreciate that adults act exactly like children. They just lie about it. They just lie about it better. Um, um, and, and, and so I guess that the sort of, the sort of the, the resentment of and resistance to phoniness and especially, uh, phoniness, uh, uh, that, that sort of, uh, uh, is coupled with with uh, con- with conformity, um, really sort of you know irks me, and and so I find myself just listening to punk all the time, and especially to hardcore because it really does match my kind of disgust with what I've discovered in the professional world. Mm. When I've discovered, and that's not something I would have known when I was sixteen years old. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a bad family. My parents weren't assholes, right? There was the sort of the conformity of the suburban life to which I somewhat resisted. And so, um, you know, I, I, I listened to my dead Kennedys and my black flag and I sort of, it did resonate with me a little bit. But I have to say that, you know, because I didn't have shitty parents and because I wasn't abused and because for the most part I wasn't picked on at school other than when I was very young, I was in elementary school. It just didn't have quite the resonance with me that it does now. But now as an adult, seeing the adult world from the inside, I'm really kind of disgusted, <laughs> right? Um, this is to my wife's uh, constant dismay because she says that she's always complaining that she has two teenagers in the house, me and my <laughs> daughter. Um, but what do you say about that? I mean, is there not a say if if the, if the resentment that punk sort of channels is the, re- the resentment against authority and conformity and phoniness? Isn't that something that an adult can ver- become very horribly aware of uh, uh, if they're self conscious and sort of honest with themselves? Well, I, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think though that there are other channels to. Uh, discover that and to to uh, practice that. Um, Angry essays, you mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, to professor, yeah, sure, or, or because you know, uh, ultimately, a middle aged punk, and there are middle aged punks. Uh, I mean, there are guys who either went back to it after they had family. I mean, look, bad religion is out playing now, right? And I got to tell you something; they're fucking way better. <laughs> than the twenty-year-olds who are running around thinking, trying to play punk now. I mean, I mean, uh-huh. I mean, they're just far better, and and I don't just mean better musicians, better energy. I mean, it, it, it's just, you know, I I just, I guess I'm, I guess what I'm thinking is that maybe our generations, particularly Gen X, has discovered something about adulthood, a dirt, the dirty little secret about adulthood, <laughs> right? And so maybe, well, yeah. yeah, but uh, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're kind of stuck with adulthood, uh, and um, it doesn't have to be fake, right? What adulthood? Yeah, it doesn't. Adulthood doesn't have to be fake and conformist, does it? Um, it doesn't have to be fake. I mean, but you think it does have to be conformist to a degree? Yeah, eventually you have to learn to, uh, you know, get along. Uh, you know, I was watching. Actually, the last thing I saw last night um, was a discussion by uh, um, LB Afro and um, the original. Who was it? Keith Morris. Uh, Keith Morris. 
originally from Black Flag, then from right. Circle Jerks when he left right. Black Flag. Yeah, and they, they this was at a, some sort of festival that uh, No Effects had gotten kicked out of. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you heard about this. Yeah, and I watched the video. I think that you're talking yes, about. But yeah. Go ahead and tell everyone. Uh, and you know, and you know, the audience is young. The same boo on occasion, uh, on occasion, um, because you know Morrison and and BF are saying, um, you know, I think Morris puts it bluntly, uh, you know, maybe at sixty three, I guess he's as old as I am. Maybe at sixty three, you know, I've had a chance to rethink things. Um, in other words, there and BF says, well, you you have to learn what you can say and where you can say it. You know, and, you know, unfortunately, that's, you know, uh, uh, he admits to having uh, had that uh, experience over and over again in the past. Yeah, you, you, as you grow older, you learn from experience. And part of the joy, excuse me, part of the joy of being a young punk yeah, is that you haven't had any experience. This is your experience. You know, this is what you're experiencing. Um, whereas, yeah, uh, I'm not saying you can't play the same songs over and over again as you get older, but, uh, you know, my worry about that outside of the fact that sometimes it does get ridiculous. I mean, uh, five, was it five years ago? I, I actually saw some of the Rolling Stones. Right, 80-year-old Rolling Stones is a bit much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so it can get ridiculous. But my pack it in, man. <laughs> but my real worry is that, you know, unless if, if you're in the scene, unless you're helping the kids realize themselves, you're actually standing in their way. You know, that's, that's no, I, I, I understand that, and... and I, I cannot stand the sort of the the, the fact that, that the older generations now have seem, seemingly forgot the lesson they sort of learned in school, which was that you're supposed to, you know, take your turn, right? Right. And right. when your turn's <laughs> over, it's the next guy's turn, right? right. Um, um, the, 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 the baby boomers seem to have not understood this. No, um, no, they... They they're won't. not retiring. They're not going away. They're not. Sort of, you know. I know it's just, and that that has political ramifications, especially in the Democratic Party. Oh yeah, I think that that look. Just, that's that's why the Democratic Party has had the troubles it has. I mean, yeah. I don't understand their their lack of a, an apparent bench, right? I, I mean, I mean, right. I mean, why they keep trotting out? I mean, we're now seriously talking about Joe Biden running for president. I mean, that's just <laughs> absurd, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, Three seventy-eight, right? Something like that. Yeah, I mean, just like you know, for God's sake. Um, but just unless you know. But to get to yeah, I, the first, the first one about the time and place. Yes, this can actually you have punk good. now, even for young people. <laughs> can you have punk now, even for young people? I think you're always going to have something now for young people. It is a modern experience. Uh, did you ever read uh, Leo Marcus's uh, Lipstick Traces? No, I don't know. No, I have not. I recommend reading it. Uh, really, had uh, he links punk to um, art uh, revolts and movements, you know, for the previous hundred years, um, and uh, it, it, it's 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 a Hegelian take on the history of punk rock. 
Mm, that sounds interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. Um, and um, what he says is, is, and I think there's a lot of truth in this. The fact of the matter is, is that modernity, you know, because of the economic restructuring that took place, um, modernity has assured us of a disaffected youth generation after generation. There will always be baby boomers standing in the way, and that will mean that there will always be young people going, when's my time? And realizing at some point there is no time and lashing out. So you're always going to have young people of one generation or another. Within a, within a two or three generation cycle, you're always going to have young people come out and do something to lash out in order to make themselves heard. Uh, it, it may be an Occupy movement. Uh, it may be a, a punk rock. You know, it may be um, a new sexual revolution. I mean, that's one of the reasons we're, we shouldn't get into this here, obviously, but uh, one of the reasons why I tend to look at I'm, one of your major concerns lately has been the identificationist movement. Yeah. Especially on college campuses. Yeah, gender identity and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, which, uh, and I agree with your take on it in uh, all the way, but I also tend to see it more, we'll, we'll see what happens with, you see it as a form of youth resistance. Yeah, we'll see what happens when these people get to be 30 or 40 or 50. Interesting. So you're, saying, you're suggesting that there will always be punk. It just may not be punk music. Right. Right. I mean, and, and that's interesting, and, and, I, and I, I, I see the logic of it. I mean, here's my worry, and there's just two, there's just two, two aspects of it, and then, and then we can wrap up. Um, right. First, um, we now increasingly have more and more the spectacle of youth not instinctively being oppositional, right? So, I mean, you have youth increasing. First of all, the young people are staying with their parents longer and longer and longer into their mm. 20s and sometimes even later. There's much less of a sense of resistance. I, the millennials and Generation Z don't instinctively resist their parents in the way that we did up until now. And that's why oftentimes they come off to me as, as being older than I am um, because they just don't seem to have that instinctual kind of resentment and resistance of authority. Yeah. Um, but then there's the other aspect in that their lives and everything, their entertainments have all been co-opted and corporatized. So punk, punk rock now is, is, is being played in huge festivals that, have corporate sponsors like Vans and all this other shit, right? Yeah. And and I just I'm I'm wondering whether a the young people today are really young anymore in the right sense to have a kind of a, a punk a punk movement, and b, uh, whether even if they do, the corporatization is so powerful and overwhelming that it just immediately co-opts and absorbs everything that they try to every sort of expression of opposition that they try to articulate. Uh, I think that it, it is a possibility. You know, we, uh, this has come up in, in previous discussions about what postmodernism is. You know, there is a, a aggressive postmodernism, postmodernism that says we should be postmodernists. We should be relativists. You know, uh, everybody knows what, exactly what they know, and there's no way to bring anything together, blah, 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 which is nonsense. 
but there's also an, a, an analysis of the postmodern condition. Uh, and we may have entered a new era. And if that's the case, it is possible that we may be in the process of redefining adolescence. Right. So, so punk is, is, is modernist. Yes. Right? Absolutely. And, and, and it's not clear that it, that, that it, that it exists in the postmodern frame, frame, right? I mean, I mean, and, and I think you're right in terms of the reconfiguration of adolescence. Look, adolescence is artificial. It's the product of industrial society, right? Um, 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 and as we move into post-industrial, to the point to which you know it's un, you know where work as we traditionally understand it is is increasingly ceasing to exist. Whether the the, the very way we divide up the age cohorts is going to change, mm-hmm. um, um, and then all bets are off. Right? You have no idea then what the cult, what the entertainment and popular culture is going to look like uh, in that land. So it's really un, un, uncharted territory that we're heading into. Is that what you think? Essentially, I think it's possible. I'm, I'm certainly willing to say that that is possible. Yeah. Um, whether it's, it's inevitable or necessary, that I don't think, but I think it is possible. Yeah. I think, you know, there are a lot of things that in terms of cultural criticism, cultural understanding, you know, there are a lot of things that exist today that just weren't there for the past 200 years. Um, you know, including the internet, obviously, yeah. uh, and all that that has, has brought us. So that there's a lot less interest in history now of any kind. Um, I mean, there were even, you know, in, in the modern era, there were competing narratives of history, certainly. Yeah. But the, con- the, the historical consciousness has shrunk. Yes. And I suspect yours is even longer than mine. But, you know, by the time I was in high school in the 1980s, my historical consciousness clear, stretched very clearly back at least to the 1950s. That is, the music, the, the, the films, the art, you know, it was part of, and that's probably because I listened to the radio, music was consumed through the radio, and so you'd be hearing stuff that was decades old. You'd be watching films on things on television, which people, you didn't have the kind of self-selecting Choice, choice, uh, 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 entertainment economy that you have now that allows you to cherry pick. And so you just simply got acculturated into the last several decades worth of culture just by being, you know, uh, operating in the public sphere. My students today, their cultural uh, consciousness is not more than five or ten years old. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm serious. And I'm not, oh, I, I, I know, I know. And I, and I, I actually think it's very dangerous. Um, I think it makes possible a kind of, Political control that that frightens me, um, 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 and and you know I've been banging on about how bad I think the lack of a general popular culture is, that, 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 how bad that is, um, and I think that this is one of the reasons. Um, but we'll have to see, I guess, where this all goes. Um, EJ, I've I've abused your time. <laughs> um, we've gone an hour oh, and forty. I, I loved it, and I'm hoping I can, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to coach you to do some more of these with me on other subjects. Um, for those in the audience, uh, please uh, check out EJ's writing in the Electric Agora. I, I, personally, I think I think the best stuff we do is the stuff you do, EJ. Um, um, it's the most interesting to me, and um, uh, and I really appreciate you taking this time to talk with me. Uh, thank you again. And uh, I'll try to maintain writing that uh, you appreciate. <laughs> no pressure at all. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, farewell to you, and um, okay. I hope to speak with you again soon. 
All right. You have All a right. wonderful day, too, and a wonderful season. Thank you, EJ. Yeah. Bye-bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.